Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This morning we continue our study through this great chapter of the Gospel of John. And while you turn there, I'll remind you of where we've been. Part of the reason why I'm insisting on treating this series of messages as a series is because John's chapter, his sixth chapter, develops. It's a whole unit. Um, Unlike some of the Gospels where you might turn to and you get a parable and you get a saying and you get an interaction, you might have five, six, seven different things in a chapter. In John 6, we have one unified text. Jesus does a sign. He works a notable miracle. He feeds the 5,000. And we see that um, beginning of the chapter. Then John gets the disciples and Jesus and the crowd across the sea. And then there's an interaction with Jesus and a teaching. And that's what we continue on this morning. It will ultimately end with the desertion of most of Jesus' disciples. Most of his disciples will go home. And even the 12 will be shaken. In this chapter, we learn about the identity of Jesus We learn about the sovereignty of God. We learn about what it means to have faith. And in this morning, we'll see having faith has something to do with eating bread, drinking water or wine, something to do with that. Let's read our chunk for this morning. We'll look at verses 30 to verse 40, John chapter 6. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would grant us faith, eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might look on the Son that we might believe in him, that we might be those who receive your gift of the true bread from heaven, that we might have life, that we might share in the resurrection of the just in the last day. So help us to receive your word, guard us from the error of this crowd, of the Jews. Give the increase, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' discourse in chapter 6 which begins somewhere around verse um, 32, after the crowd comes to him and speaks to him, proceeds to really the rest of the chapter with a couple markers. 
we're coming up against one of the first ones. If you look at verse 41, the reason why this ends the first section of Jesus' discourse is we get a note from the author about how the people respond. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. It's not going well. They don't like it. Then in verse 52, we get another report. Then the Jews disputed among themselves. Then in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So this is the progression. The feeding of the 5,000 is, is a pinnacle peak moment of Jesus' public ministry. His single largest public miracle of his ministry, excluding the crucifixion and resurrection. And we see that a, a, a huge crowd assembles. They're so excited, they cross the sea to see him the next day. And yet when they're finished hearing what Jesus has to say, they will grumble, they will dispute, they will go home. It's, it's terrible, tragic. So we're going to look at this closing of the first section of Jesus' discourse in four points, simply following the discussion. The crowd's going to say something, Jesus is going to say something. The crowd's going to say something, Jesus is going to have a lot more to say. That's, that's it. So point number one, the crowd demands another sign, verse 30 to 31. Now, I reminded you last time we were here that in some respects, this crowd is showing initiative. There are some things about this crowd that might even put us to shame. They came out to Jesus in the wilderness. They stayed with him all day. They traveled probably by foot. If they're still there the next morning, they probably slept out in the open in the wilderness in a barren place. And then the next morning, they get up and they get in boats and they go follow and find Jesus. That's all clear. They're looking for Jesus. And they're willing to, to put some, sh some skin in the game. They're walking. They're seeking. And yet when they come to Jesus and they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus does not congratulate them. Jesus does not encourage them. Rather, he gives them a rebuke. Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, says this to them in chapter 6. When they found Jesus... Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 25, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not following me, Jesus says, for the right reason. You're not seeking me for the right reason. And rather than saying, that's okay, I can work with that, Jesus reveals more and more truth to them and exposes their unbelief. It is a loving thing to do this. It's a loving thing to take nominal false disciples and show them, you don't really submit to Christ. You don't really follow the Lord. You're not really one of his sheep. And that is what Jesus is doing. But John, in telling this to us, also allows us to sit in and watch and, and learn. Let's see which side of the line we come down on. So after their initial inquiry to Jesus, what becomes clear in the discussion, they, they begin to discuss what the works of God are. And Jesus tells them plainly, the works of God are to believe in the one whom he has sent. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? This is the people that the day before saw Jesus multiply and feed over 5,000 people. 
And so what we learn is, point one, they require daily signs to sustain daily faith. They require daily signs to sustain daily faith. I've heard somebody say, speaking of church and evangelism, that whatever you use to draw people is what you have to use to keep people. If you draw a crowd through entertainment, through exciting visuals, but well, you're gonna keep, you need to keep giving those things because that's, that's what draw, brought them there. That's what they're gonna want. You can't bait and switch. Whatever you draw them with, you need to keep them with. This is a crowd drawn by miracles and signs, and guess what they keep needing? Miracles and signs. And they actually don't want to leave it open for any old sign, any old miracle. They've got a very particular miracle in mind. They're going to be so bold as to suggest to Jesus what he should do. Well, just read the text. Um, Our fathers, verse 31, ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hint, hint, hint. They liked that bread. This confirms what Jesus says. They're seeking him, not because they saw signs, because they, they ate their fill of food. They suggest, point B, another miraculous feeding. They think that would be great. And presumably, they'd want it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And as long as Jesus keeps working for them, don't, don't miss that, the discussion about the works of God. They ask him, well, what work do you do? You work for us, we'll work for you. You want our faith? Keep working for us. Jesus, the miracle caterer, day after day after day after day after day. That's what they want. And then they, they, they make it biblical. They, they give the Old Testament precedent. They say, after all, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. Now, it's not entirely clear what they're quoting here. The best likelihood would be Psalm 78. Psalm 78. But I think their point is this. Jesus, they've considered, they've even said, is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18. They, they say that this is indeed, verse, way back in verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the prophet greater than Moses, well, if you remember Jesus, Moses gave the people bread not one day, but how many days? Every day. And if you're claiming the office of prophet greater than Moses, well, then we kind of ask and expect you to give us bread every day, just like Moses did. I mean, after all, there's a precedent. Moses didn't just do this once. Moses did it every day, except the Sabbath. But for 30 years, God gave the people bread through the mediation of Moses. And so that's their argument. They think it's biblical. They think it's fitting. Ought not the prophet like Moses repeat with regularity the miracles and the signs that Moses did? And we've got to pause for a moment, consider the significance of bread. Jesus is going to say in a few minutes, I am the bread come down from heaven. And we've, we've got to understand that in the world they live in, bread isn't one of many types of food. Bread is food. There still are places in the world today where there's a basic food type. In, in the East, it'll be rice. In Papua New Guinea, it'll be the sweet potato. There's the food, that, that is food. We even saw with the boy, he had little cakes of bread and a little dried fish with it. But bread, in this part of the world, is what you eat. It's food. We have such wealth in our day that we can pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. But in, in Jesus' day, and when Jesus talks about being the bread, he's saying, I am the food source. And the notion that someone says, well, I don't really like bread. 
If you don't really like bread, you die in this part of the world. You don't eat. And so, so they want this daily bread. That's their suggestion. They say to Jesus, you want us to believe in you? That's the work God requires. We got a work for you to do, Jesus. And we got a suggestion. Do what Moses did. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. So how will Jesus respond to that? Jesus is going to correct them. Jesus is going to correct them. Jesus insists that his father gives the true bread. Verse 32 and verse 33. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now it becomes clear that when they say in verse um, 31, he gave them bread to eat from heaven, they mean Moses. Moses gave him the bread. Because Jesus' correction assumes that. He says, no, it wasn't Moses who gave him bread. The Father gave bread. So you're blank here. Moses only mediated. He only mediated the giving of the earthly bread. He, he was the leader of the people. And through his mediation, God gave the people the manna. But the, the manna was from God, the Father. In other words, if you want to think about that event in the Old Testament, you want to think about the events of Exodus 16, and it's good to do so, there's a different set of conclusions you should be drawing. Their conclusions are, Moses did this every day, therefore, if you want to be the prophet like Moses, you need to do it every day. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you need to think about something different. My father, your father, God the Father, provided bread from heaven for his people. He gave it to them day after day after day. Every day, God the Father, to this grumbling, rebellious people, gave them bread, gave them bread, gave them bread. He gave them what they needed to live. And then, notice the shift in tenses here. He says, but my father gives, not gave or will give, is giving, present tense, the blank here, Jesus' Father is now giving the true bread from heaven. Well, that's interesting. They're, they're so focused on do what Moses did over and over again. Moses didn't give the bread. God the Father gave the bread, and God the Father gave the bread then to make it clear he is the one who gives you the food source you need to live, and he is even now giving the true bread from heaven. What on earth is that? Well, we learn at least two things. This true bread from heaven, point one, is personal. Is personal. For the bread of God is he. It's a person. Now, you probably know who the he is, but just go with me as Jesus goes with he. What's the first thing he reveals? The true bread from heaven is a person. It's a he. This bread is he who comes down from heaven. And again, Jesus' claim to come from heaven is, is critical to all of this. His insistence that he has come down from heaven. Jesus' Father is now giving the true bread from heaven. And I'll pause and make one other note. In this text, the Father does some giving. This is the first of two places the Father does some giving. Here, what he is giving, present tense, he is giving, he is offering to give the true bread from heaven, and the true bread from heaven is a he, is a person. Point two, it's universal. This is the true bread that gives life to the world. It gives life to the world. And we've got to talk for a moment about life, and we've got to talk about world. Now, the, the Jews talking to Jesus are going to misunderstand. But John doesn't want us to misunderstand. 
In John's gospel, the notion of life and what constitutes life has been developed as early as chapter one, verse four. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And we all know John 3, 15 and 16, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in a similar context where Jesus is talking about a supernatural source of sustenance, and he's misunderstood to be talking about a natural source, he said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or in John 5, 21, Jesus says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What does Jesus mean by life? What is John framing by life? Life is to not face God's judgment for your sin. That is death. If you stand before God and have to account for your sins without an advocate, without an intercessor, that is death. And it's a death that will take eternity to accomplish. Life in John's gospel is the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, reconciliation. That's what's being spoken of as having life. That's why Jesus can speak about having life now and in the age to come. Now you can experience reconciliation and peace with God. Now you can have life. That's how John's been developing this. I'll I'll read that again. Truly, truly, I say to you, 524, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then he defines what that means. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. So Jesus makes this offer. The Father is now giving the true bread from heaven, who is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And let's talk about world for a moment. We know the Jews are very nationalistic. They're expecting a national savior, a national messiah, And John in his gospel has been sowing seeds that this salvation goes well beyond the borders of Israel. As early as 1.9, again in the prologue, the true light which gives light to every man or everyone was coming into the world. How does John the Baptist point out Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? The Samaritans might have even put it best. In John 4 to 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. God the Father is now offering, he is now giving, and I'd say even this morning is now giving, the true bread from heaven, which gives life to all peoples, to the world which means even to Gentiles like us. I'm assuming most of you here, like me, are a Gentile. So, Jesus' Father is now giving the true bread. It's personal, and it is universal. This all goes over the heads of the crowd. What do they say? It's similar, very similar, in fact, to the early stages of Jesus with the woman at the well. He tells her, I've got living water. If you drink it, you'll never thirst. And what does she say? Give me this water so I don't have to come here to the well. What do the Jews say here? They said in verse 34, sir, 
give us this bread always. Now they're still noticed and they're still focused on a daily giving. We, if there's this type of bread, we want that. And you just keep giving it to us. You just keep giving it to us. They haven't really shifted what they want. All they've done is upgraded it. If you're saying, Jesus, you've got even better bread than what you gave us yesterday, give us that bread and just keep giving it to us always. Just, just give it to us always. Keep giving us that bread. And in some respects, they're in, they're in similar stead with the woman at the well. She misunderstood. Now, as Jesus clarified to her, she gets on board. As Jesus clarifies with them, they become more and more hostile. That's where things begin to differ. But they misunderstand and still seek for earthly food. They misunderstand and still seek for earthly food, which then brings us to point four. Jesus declares who he is and why he has come. He begins to speak even more clearly. This is the longest section thus far in the chapter of Jesus talking. He's going to reveal a lot about himself and a lot about why he has come in his mission. And at the other side of this, they are not going to say, okay, now we get it. They're going to grumble. Just like Israel in the wilderness, they're going to grumble. So let's look at this. Verse 35. And this is one of the great I am stayings in John's gospel repeatedly At various places, Jesus will say, I am. I am the good shepherd, or I am the door, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here, I am the bread of life, Jesus said to them. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're going to look at this in three points. First, point A, Jesus' clarification and correction. Jesus' clarification and correction. He's going to first clarify, and then he's going to rebuke. And the clarification, in this case, they didn't pick up on it. I'm sure you guys picked up on it. He who comes down from heaven, this bread is personal. But what we learn here is Jesus provides and is the bread of life. Jesus provides. Like Moses, he mediates it. Except unlike Moses, it's him. Jesus provides and is the bread of life, come down from heaven. He gives life to the world. Jesus is the bread of life. He provides and is the bread of life. And then in the next sentence, he really unpacks the interpretive key for the rest of the chapter. Again, part of the reason why I'm dealing with this chapter as a total unit is because it's really gonna be impossible to understand later things he says without things he says here. If you remember when we introduced this chapter, we discussed, is chapter 6 about what we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever term you use? And I don't think it is. And I gave you a couple reasons. One, Jesus doesn't institute the Lord's Supper for at least another year in in the timeline. In other words, nobody here in Capernaum, nobody in, in the first instance would think anything about that. John, as a narrator, doesn't make any of those connections like he does in other places, You remember when Jesus talked about destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up? He said his disciples did not understand. But later, after he was raised from the dead, they remembered and believed the word of God. Nothing like that here. But most significantly, we get an interpretive key. What does it mean to eat and to drink? Which is where this is going to go later in chapter 6. 
Starting in verse 51. Jesus will say, if you turn to 51, um, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life my give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then some of the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What is Jesus talking about? The early church was accused of cannibalism by their Roman detractors through either intentional or unintentional misunderstanding of some of these teachings. What is going on? We get the interpretive key here. Jesus says, now don't miss it, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So pause. Jesus is talking about coming to him and believing in him. And what he says is the act of coming to him results in not hungering. And believing in him results in not thirsting. What is he equating coming to him and believing in him as? It's eating and drinking, right? What activity do you do that satiates hunger? You eat. What activity do you do that satiates thirst? You drink. So right here, Jesus is giving the key to the metaphor he's about to use. He's not leaving the crowd confused as if somehow they're supposed to understand this is supposed to be about something he hasn't even taught yet for another year. Rather, as he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, if they'd been paying attention, they'd understand he's talking about coming to him, believing in him. So your, your blanks here. Come to Jesus and be completely satiated. Come to Jesus and be completely satiated. And believe in Jesus and be fully satisfied. Come to Jesus and be completely satiated. Believe in Jesus and be fully satisfied. Satisfied, And here again, I think we get some new nuances for what it means to come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. Because this analogy is not for nothing. There is something about faith, saving faith, that is a little similar to eating and drinking. It's one of the reasons we keep this as a sign going forward. In what way is faith like eating or drinking. Well, there's a sense of hunger or desire and a sense of satisfaction. That, that's unmistakable here. In other words, believing in Jesus is more than believing a fact. Like, I believe Caesar crossed the Rubicon and invaded Rome. It means nothing to me. Or I believe the sun is so many miles away. That's, that's, that, there's nothing satisfying about that. The assumption here is that some hunger, and you, you know when you get hungry, you get thirsty, it slowly builds and it slowly builds until finally nothing is more important than getting something to eat, getting something to drink. It's driving you, it's pressing you. And Jesus is saying saving faith in him, in some sense, equates to that. This is, this is what Jesus talks about elsewhere in, in the Beatitudes, where he says, for instance, in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. God led his people in the wilderness and they hungered and they thirsted and they cried out for food and God gave them food from heaven. And the purpose was to show them that what they need to survive, what they need to live, they could not make on their own, God would give them. And as you and I stand under the weight of God's just wrath at our sin, 
We feel a dread. We feel a sense of yearning. And there is something that can satisfy that. We long for reconciliation with God. We long to be cleansed. We long to have a righteousness that we know we can't do. And in that sense, faith in Jesus satisfies those longings. Otherwise, what does it mean to never hunger again? What does it mean to never thirst again? But the cleansing, the forgiveness you get from Jesus at the moment of salvation lasts. The peace with God you have endures. Believing and coming to Jesus is like eating and drinking because it satisfies you. There's something satisfying about this. This is why Jesus can also talk about the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field and in his joy he sold everything that he had that he might take possession of that field. Christ satisfies. This is the basis on why Christians can suffer because when they take from us lesser things, we still have the greatest thing, something that satisfies us so that we're not left starving and hungry spiritually. That's all tied up in Jesus' metaphor. That's what they should have learned when they considered Exodus 16 and the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus says it plainly here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But then there's a, a sting on the tail here. He tells them plainly, I've said to you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. You are not left guessing now. These people who saw the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, these people who slept in open country, got up the next morning and sought Jesus, got in boats, traveled across the sea to find him, they didn't, it wasn't, they didn't just have to click a YouTube link or turn on a podcast. They're actually doing things to find Jesus. And Jesus tells them plainly, you do not believe. You do not believe. Which then brings this point B to Jesus' confidence and certainty. So first, we have this clarification and correction. He speaks plainly. I- I'm the bread of life, Jesus says. I offer true satisfaction. I offer true satiation. Come to me. Believe in me. But you don't. You don't. And we might wonder at this point, is Jesus chagrined? Has Jesus failed? His ministry is going poorly. This great crowd is not believing in him. Well, how, does, how does that make Jesus feel? How does he evaluate this result? I should have tried harder. I should have said some different things. No. He's confident. Look what he says. He says to them, you do not believe but all that the Father gives me will come to me. He is, he's not chagrined. Here's your blank. Their unbelief does not thwart God's plan. The plan was never to save everyone. Else the plan failed. Understand, if the plan was to save everyone, the plan failed. And man thwarted God's plan. If only God was a little smarter, a little more powerful, a little wiser, a little better. No, the plan is not to save everyone. There's an offer of salvation to everyone. The plan we're to see is he's come to save those who his father has given to him. Jesus takes comfort, in other words, in the sovereignty of God and salvation. I don't know how you get through John 6 and not get this. Jesus is looking at the mass affection of large crowds, and he isn't second-guessing himself and wondering if maybe I should have been a little more winsome. No, all of the Father who gives me will come to me, he says. He's not troubled in the least by it in that sense. Well, I'm sure he's dismayed over the tragedy of these people. 
But there's no second guessing how he's doing ministry. There's no regathering the disciples. Let's come up with a better plan that will give us better results. No, he's confident in the sovereignty of his father's plan. All, not some, not most, but all, and the father gives me will come to me. That, that's what he puts his confidence in. Their unbelief does not thwart God's plan. Now notice on the flip side of that, the assumption is you're not the ones my father gave to me. How do we know that? Well, because he just said, if you were, they'd come. All who the father gives me will come to me. Which makes the decisive factor, and you're going to see this in John's gospel again and again and again, the decisive factor in human salvation is the will of God. And Jesus takes comfort in that. It, it bolsters him. He's confident. Their unbelief does not thwart God's plan. And then notice on the flip side, because people get tripped up on this. Well, if, if it's those the Father gives, then how do I know if I'm one? Just come. Jesus insists whoever comes to him will never be turned away. Don't, don't, if you're thinking about coming to Christ, don't, don't waste time wondering whether or not God's given you. If you're able to come, you, you have been given. No one who comes to Jesus gets turned away. There's no invisible glass wall stopping those whom the Father hasn't given from coming. If you come to Jesus, Jesus receives you. He insists on that point as well. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you want to come to Jesus, he will not turn you away. He will not cast you out. He receives all who come to him. There's an open invitation, an open invitation, which brings us um, from Jesus confidence and certainty to his, to, sorry, from his confidence to his certainty, he will never cast out those who come to him, which brings us finally, point C, to Jesus' commission and his commitment. Jesus' commission and his commitment. In this final section, verses 38 to 40, the word will appears four times. It's the dominant theme. Jesus has been commissioned. There's a plan, there's a purpose, there's a will that must be fulfilled, and it's not Jesus's. It's the Father's. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast down. And then verse 38, four, why? Why is that the case? Why is it that Jesus will never cast out who comes to him? And why is it the case that all the Father gives to him will come to him? For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So get this, the center point here is the will of the Father. The Son has come to do the will of the Father. And so this is about the Son's commission and his commitment. His commission and his commitment. Point one, Plainly here, the Father sent Jesus into the world from heaven to accomplish his will. Jesus has come as a commissioned agent to carry out the will of another. He said this over and over again. I don't speak of my own authority. I can do nothing of myself. I can only do what the Father who sent me would have me do. Jesus is acting perfectly on behalf of his Father who sent him. That's another reason he's not second-guessing his ministry style. He is carrying out the will of his father. And then he goes on to explain what the will of his father is and why it is Jesus will turn away zero people who come to him. The 
Father sent Jesus to accomplish his will, that will being that the Son lose none of those given to him. This is going to become a big theme in John's gospel. A really big theme in John's gospel. We, we celebrate this fact. Have you, ever, have you ever rejoiced in the truth that if you are Christ, he says no one can snatch you out of his hands? One of my favorite songs we sing on Sunday morning is He Will Hold Me Fast. We talk about being once saved, always saved. This is one of those texts that we should be based that glorious truth on. But I want you to notice something. It's ultimately, at the end of the day, not about you. Why will Jesus hold you fast? Why will he not let you slip from his hands? And I don't want to minimize his love for you and for me. He does. But what does Jesus credit the reason? His Father's will. And I find far more comfort in that because I am well aware that I can be very unlovely at times. No need to amen. I can. And if Christ's love for me were the final anchor of my salvation, I might be tempted to think, maybe on some of my more unlovely days, his grip might kind of, oops. Understand that your security is finally based, not in the son's love for you, but his love and commitment to his father. And that will never waver. That will never shrink back. Jesus insists here, the reason none will be lost is because his father's will who sent him is that I lose nothing of all that he has given to me. This will become more fully plain in John 17. We are caught up in intra-Trinitarian love. Get this. We are given by the Father to the Son, and because the Father gave us to the Son with instructions not to lose us, we do not get lost. It might trouble some of us because we like being at the center of the story. We like being the wonderful, shiny, sparkly sunbeam. Jesus wouldn't die for trash. He saw our potential and he saw our value. None of it. You and I are the three-year-old's drawing put on the fridge, not because it's fine art, but because the father loves the three-year-old. Right? That's the the rationale. The father gave a broken, corrupt, sinful people to the son with instructions that he not lose them and he purify them and he atone for them and he die for them and the son's love for his father he says yes and we get caught up into that and yes he loves you and yes he loves me but he loves his father more and that is the basis of our security turn to john 17 i just want you to see this this is not this is we live in a day and an age where we feel most love when we're made much of. Tell me how beautiful I am. Tell me how wonderful I am. Tell me how you can't live without me. Tell me how special I am. Tell me how much potential I have. The story of the gospel is not really told that way. And we are loved. And he makes us lovely. And he has great plans for us. And we'll rule with him. And we'll judge angels. I mean, but at the end of the day, it's ultimately but a father and a son and a father who's proud of his son and determined to glorify him, and a son who honors his father. In John 17, Jesus prays first for himself, but then he prays for his disciples, starting in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. 
persistent theme out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. You hear that? Here, Jesus is not praying for everyone. He made other times in other places. Here, he's praying for those the Father gave to him. For they are yours, all are mine, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. You see, the son is so concerned to keep his commission that he knows that while he's on the cross bearing our sin and God's wrath for it, he's concerned that lest we slip from his grasp in that moment that the Father keep us safe while he comes to the Father, which is a way of speaking when his death, burial, and resurrection. The night before he died, he's worried about us. He's worried about the commission his Father gave to him, not to lose one. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified. And just one verse more. The night before... Jesus is crucified hours before his arrest and his mock trial. He prays for those, and then he prays for you and me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Are we not those who believe in Jesus through the word of those disciples alive then and there? He's, he's thinking of you and me in the garden. We have a Come back to John 6. We've got to finish up and sing our closing song, but glorious truth. If you're a Christian, the Father gave you to the Son. And notice, earlier in the text, the Father is offering to give us the living bread of life from heaven. But he's only doing that because he first made a gift to the Son. And the gift was people. And if you're a Christian, you've been given to the Son by the Father. And on that basis, you are secure. On that basis, you cannot slip through his hands. On that basis, you will make it through the storm to glory because of the son's commitment to his father. The son lose none of those given to him. Point three, that the son will raise them up on the last day. We've seen that in John 5. Jesus claims that he is going to, by the power of his word, raise all some to a resurrection of judgment and death, some to a resurrection of life. The Father would have Jesus hold us fast and he will hold us fast in this life. And on the final day, when we are raised, it'll be the voice of our Savior we hear calling us forth from the tomb, as it were, like Lazarus, come forth. That's the Father's will, that Jesus 
keep you and hold you and save you and finally raise you. Point four, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and be raised on the last day. This, verse 40, is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. What what does that mean? What does it mean to look on the Son? Again, we're getting another angle of what faith is like, what saving faith is like. Saving faith, we've learned already, is like having a hunger satisfied, having a thirst quenched, finding a satisfaction in the one in whom you trust. Here, Jesus likens it to something he said before. Turn back to John 3, quickly. We'll we'll be brief here. What does it mean, those who look on the Son? In John 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you say, Pastor Jeremy, nothing here talks about looking on Jesus. It does in Numbers. So turn, turn quickly. T- turn to Numbers. No, Jesus gives this imagery. Jesus makes the connection. Jesus will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up by Moses. We get that in three. And then the Numbers account gives us look on. Gives us look on. Numbers 21. You will try to be fast. I make no promises. Numbers 21. Now, this is important. What does it mean to believe savingly? What is Jesus putting on the table for these Jews who ate food from heaven at his hand in the wilderness, who followed him across a sea, and now have been told they don't believe? Let's just read the account of the bronze serpent, verse 4 of 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. What worthless food are they talking about? The bread from heaven. God is feeding these ungrateful people every day with miraculous food and like a bunch of whiny me's and you's. Let's be honest. They grow tired of it. There's nothing to eat except this miraculous food, and I'm tired of it. Because we never do that, right? (sighs) Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, who sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I believe that's what Jesus is referencing. He's already connected himself to this bronze serpent in John 3. So he says here, this is the Father's will, whoever looks upon the Son and believes in him. Okay, so let's make the connection. In the first instance, in Numbers 21, God's people delivered from slavery, being fed day by day with miraculous food, begin to grumble and complain, and they, they, they sit under God's judgment. 
And then they cry out for a, a way to escape God's judgment. And the way out is this, to look at the physical representation of the judgment itself. Don't miss that. They got to look at a serpent. That's the very thing they're dreading. That's the very thing they're crying out against. We don't want more serpents. You got our attention. No more serpents. Please intercede for us. You got to look at one more serpent. And what it recognizes is they need to, they need to own the guilt of the judgment. You, you look upon the judgment that God has given against your sin. You look upon it. Own it. Recognize it as just. And, and you can be forgiven. It'll go away. And that's what happens with Jesus on the cross. What is saving faith? It's looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus crucified and recognizing that should be me. It would be fitting. It would be right and good of God to do that to me. Own that. Look upon the Son that way and believe in him. And you'll have eternal life and Christ will raise you on the last day. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to these people who get the connection. They ate miracle food in the wilderness. They were out in the wilderness with Jesus. And what are they about to do? Tragedy of tragedies. They don't get it. Very next verse, where we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. They grumbled. They grumbled. Jesus is telling them, you don't believe, but even now, if you will look upon me like those Israelites in the wilderness who'd eaten miraculous bread, looked upon the serpent. There's also an implicit implication. Even if Jesus did keep feeding them every day, they'd get tired of it. They would cry out like the Israelites, Jesus, can you make something different? We're kind of getting sick and tired of the miracle bread. And you and I would too. No, Jesus is saying the bread given is meant to point to a bread that will ultimately and finally satisfy. And that everyone who looks upon Jesus the way the Israelites needed to look upon the bronze serpent, everyone who looks upon him recognizing that's me, that's what I deserve, own that. I'm not making excuses for yourself. Own that God would be perfectly righteous and just and angels would praise him if he did that to you or me. It would be holy, it would be good. And then the wonder of God's mercy is that he did it to his son. Instead, look upon his son on the cross for your sin. Own that, believe in that, and have life and be raised. That is the bread of heaven truly come down, given to you by the Father. That is what is being offered you by the Father. That is what the Father is willing to give to each and every one of us today. Let's close in a word of prayer as I call it the worship team. We'll sing our closing song. We, we would have eyes of faith. We would see and believe. We would look with faith. We would confess that we deserve in ourselves your just judgment. We deserve your condemnation. We deserve your wrath. And, and we confess that... Uh, pouring out of your wrath on the cross upon the Lord Jesus Christ is what we deserve. And so we will trust in the bread you have sent. We will believe in the one who has come down from heaven and we will 
trust that in him and in his death and in his resurrection, we have life now and life of the age, and that one day we will hear his voice calling us forth into the resurrection of life. And Lord, we confess that is more than enough. In Jesus' name, amen.